You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording from the fifth webinar organised as part of Framing Ageing, Clinical, Cultural and Social Dialogue. The first speaker was Dana Walrath, Atlantic Fellow for Equity and Brain Health at the Global Brain Health Institute, who spoke on Between Alice and the Eagle, Dementia Journeys and the Final Breath. So please join me by starting with a deep breath in and a deep breath out to remember all those who are sick or have died before their time, either from COVID-19 or from deeply embedded systemic injustice. Thank you. So I'm zooming in from unceded Abenaki land, now the state of Vermont in the Northeastern United States. When the Canadian border opens someday, Montreal is only a 90 minute drive away. Now, throughout this past year, the hope that the pandemic would lead us to rethinking all our global practices and systems has kept me going. Personally, I've had it really easy during the pandemic. I live steps away from Lake Champlain and a couple of hundred acres of gorgeous forests along its shores. The Abenaki tell us that their transformer creator, Ojihodzo, placed himself within a stone that rises up out of the lake so that he could always be here with this beauty. I'm a 10 minute bike ride from downtown and a 10 minute drive to the airport. And I'm listing all of this, not to make you jealous, but to um, talk about uh, this because change demands that we engage with our privilege. Now this time last year, silence, uh, the uh, lockdown silenced the truck and the airplane traffic that now penetrates the forest. And since that silence, a handful of billionaires used the pandemic to amass even more wealth The global vaccine sits in 10 wealthy countries, mine the worst among them, while the pandemic devastates India. So today, as my title promises, I'll focus on death and dementia journeys across the globe within a framework that looks at growing older as a basic human right and at our responsibility to make aging more equitable. This requires seeing long life and the expensive medical privileges, uh, interventions upon which it depends as a privilege. It requires a deep interrogation of the biomedical industrial complex, along with an interrogation of civilization itself. Now, from an anthropological perspective, civilization is a relatively new social form. It's only five or so thousand years old, and in it, power and wealth are passed through the generations. It's based on conquest, extraction, and domination, not just of other peoples, but of nature itself. Now, as we interrogate, we have to separate science, a magnificent method for discovering the mechanisms of the universe from the power structures that monetize and profit from this knowledge without regard for the health of the earth and its inhabitants. It's a tall order, I know, but we've got helpers. This is my mother, Alice. She lived with dementia for approaching 20 years, and you met her last spring in the wake of George Floyd's murder and the um, stark reality of the disproportionate sickness and death of black and brown people from COVID-19. This is Eagle, the primate of birds. 
Eagle signifies strength, keen, far-reaching vision, insight, and soaring flight. Eagles zoom out metaphorically and physically. Eagles make their way into the mythology and national symbolism, and their feathers are sacred medicinal objects. Now, what do Alice and the Eagle have in common? Flight, special powers, and a capacity for an altered magical state. Dementia gave these qualities to Alice, like when she could look up and see my dead father when she placed her hand on, upon her heart. Now the utility of this magic is left out of the biomedical formulations of disease. But before you get too nervous about uh, my forays into the realm of magic, let me tell you how I define it. Magic refers to mysterious, naturally occurring phenomena whose mechanisms have so far eluded scientific inquiry. Radium was magic before Marie Curie discovered how it worked. Likewise, the interstitium. Remember the new organ, human organ system discovered in 2018 consisting of a network of fluid-filled spaces? The interstitium was new to Western scientists and doctors Yet traditional Chinese medicine already focused on these fluid-filled interconnected fascial planes because that's the space within, the within which the magic of qi flows. The interstitium was new only to those who saw their way as the only way and who used solely their uh, methodologies uh, to establish legitimacy. Now, perhaps, this reminds you of European conquest of the Americas and of its colonization of so much of the so-called old world. If it doesn't, just please try and join me here for a minute. European conquest entailed a set of people arriving in a space that was new to them and calling it a discovery. They arrived so certain that their ways were the right ones and the only ones that they used this superiority to grant themselves the license to take, to conquer, to extract, to monetize, all in the name of progress and civilization. Biomedical discovery takes place within the frameworks birthed by civilization. Researchers have to scramble for money to fund their work, for kudos, for tweets. Findings guarantee incomes and promotions. Findings lead to products which are bought and sold, all in the name of progress. Now, some products, like the vaccine we've all been waiting for, are hoarded, and distribution remains unjust because biomedicine focuses more on individual bodies than on the common good. Such individualism and biomedicine's integration with market economies derives from the stratified hierarchies of civilization. Remember, it's a system based on conquest, extraction, and domination of nature. So therefore, biomedicine works to prevent death, leaving us to search for ways to embrace, accept, or at least detoxify this natural part of life. Now, doing so leaves us free to overcome preventable, untimely deaths rooted in systemic injustice, violence, greed, and aggression. My mother's long dementia journey and watching dementia across the globe revealed a path towards detoxifying death along with the imperative for, in, um, for equity. Now detox is a three-step process. Step one, talk about death, make it natural. Alice and I spoke about death constantly. 
A decade before she died, she initiated rehearsals calling, Dana, get a shower curtain or something to put under me. I don't want to make a mess. Ever the scientist, she remembered that her bodies let go after that last breath. Following her lead, after she moved from my home, I brought up death nearly every time we were together. Now, sometimes she initiated the conversations as she did about 18 months before she died, asking me in Armenian, Papa Ure, where's Papa? Papa Ure. Alice used her first language, a language that I didn't learn until university. A child of refugees, Alice learned English only when she went to school. To spare me that shame and the painful legacy of genocide, she taught me English honed on Lewis Carroll and Charles Dickens. But that day, Armenian was a code, her way of showing me that I was a trusted insider who might know something of Papa's whereabouts and how to guide her to him. He's in heaven, I answered, conscious that I was using another sort of code. Alice had never believed in anything as unscientific as heaven, but her Papa had believed and his own Papa was a deacon in the Armenian church in Constantinople. Would you like to see him? Alice nodded. You will. I was ready. When you die, her search for Papa spoke to me of her readiness. Now, Alice hung on to our conversations about death once after a particularly pointed one that took place with me pushing her wheelchair along the shores of Lake Champlain. Alice unnerved others by proclaiming, I die, I die, I die. No randomized controlled trial will bring us to the deep ancestral knowledge that we can welcome death. We all hold this wisdom in our hearts, though it may be buried behind scientific rationality that scorns such magic. Now, within so many cultures, ancestors are always present, their voices heard in the wind or in the water flowing over stones. I saw this firsthand when I was studying dementia in Japan, a trip which included a homestay with Kamiyo-san and Michiko-san, um, who had been living with early onset dementia already for many years. Our time together in and out of their home allowed for intimacy and a meeting as equals, fellow humans on our respective dementia journeys. Now, had I remained a researcher, my last morning with them might not have included allowing me to enter the room that served as a shrine for their ancestors, whose constant presence normalized death and Michiko-san's liminal state. Step two, do the work to die in peace instead of focusing all energy on staving off death. Like when I brought Alice to visit her parents' grave, a place she had not visited since her mother died in 1954. We arrived at the massive cemetery, a bit bigger than Dublin's Glasnevin on a Sunday afternoon, 158 acres of graves, 640,000 square meters. The office was closed and we didn't have a plot number. We lived six hours away, so this was our only chance. So I got back into the truck and started driving through the grounds till it just felt right to park. And then we got out and started walking back and forth, up and down the rows. And within 20 minutes, I was standing for the very first time in my life in front of my grandparents' grave. Now, was it the ancestors helping us? 
magic, dumb luck, or some uh, still unknown form of communication, who knows? But I know that that visit let Alice make peace with her parents. It let her remember, put herself back together to die in peace. Alice also had to remember her younger brother, Antranik, born with an extra chromosome 21. During dementia, Alice burned with shame and guilt as she told me that she had been glad when her brother was put into the Wasaic State School for mental defectives and that she hated waiting with him on the street corner while her mother and older sister scrubbed the floors of their railroad apartment. We went back to that New York City corner together so she could remember, so she could be kind to him. Step three. Put measures in place to avoid artificial prolongation of life, both to make death peaceful and to repair inequity. Start seeing our normalized medical interventions through this lens. Here, Ireland's instructive. Over 50% of the people living with dementia in Ireland are transferred out of nursing homes to die in hospital after receiving a suite of expensive final life-saving measures. Imagine the schools around the world this might instead support. Even without dementia, imagine if each and every medical decision throughout our lives included asking ourselves, who does this benefit? Who is left out? From whose labor was the wealth amassed that allows me to afford this? And whose poorly paid labor is making this intervention possible? And let's go back here now to dementia to remember that care homes rely upon flows of workers from poor to wealthy nations, from the global south to the global north. These essential workers displaced by our unjust world order leave behind their older relatives. I saw this firsthand in Armenia where most older adults lived without any family in country because unemployment forced the younger generations to Moscow to find work. Now, when Alice was kicked out of her second memory care home in New York, I was told that her only option was a high cost nursing home where her bodily functions could be attended to and monitored. Instead, I chose to bring her back to Vermont where love and care could include remembering and it could include refusing basic medical care like antibiotics. Alice lived well here for another three years until a tooth abscess treated only with pain relief, let her die gently, her two daughters, seven of her eight grandchildren and a host of essential workers who loved her dearly by her side. We're meant to live and die in community. When a tree dies in a forest, it remains part of the community, sustaining the earth, the other plants, animals, bacteria, fungus, an entire ecosystem. So like eagles, circling above the forest, we must zoom out and extend our view and our community to include the entire planet. Flying high adds to this expansion a long view of time. It lets us touch our ancestors and those who will follow us. This connects us to our hearts where we all know that we can learn to welcome death. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Framing Aging. For more information on the project, 
to access podcasts and videos from our events, check out the project website at framingaging.ucd.ie.